Hey listeners, did you know that Yogi Triathlete offers endurance coaching for body and mind? We offer personalized training plans for endurance sports, wellness and mindset, nutrition and recovery guidance, and race preparation and strategy, all within the supportive community of Team Yogi Triathlete. So if you're ready to conquer your fitness goals and push your limits, our endurance coaches are ready to guide you on the journey to peak performance. Go to yogitriathlete.com today to set up your free 30-minute discovery call and embrace a future of strength, stamina, and achievement. Your goals, our experience, the perfect match for unstoppable success. How can you find some fulfillment? And the reality of life is that you can't expect it to be all all the time. It, it's, it can't, you can't move through with this all or nothing mentality and expect fulfillment because the world's going to throw things at you and life's going to throw challenges at you and really hard stuff. So how can you find some fulfillment in the smaller doses of the practices that you know you need? Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 401 of the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. We are your hosts, Jess and BJ, and we're thrilled to welcome back Dr. Daya Grant to the show. Daya is a mental performance consultant, neuroscientist, yoga teacher, writer, athlete, and mom. For the past 20 years, she studied the brain and how it relates to athletic performance. Combined with her knowledge of yoga, which is the ancient science of the mind, she brings together old and new world science and wisdom to assist athletes in reaching their performance potential. Although we've kept in touch with Dr. Grant since our last conversation, BJ and I have really been looking forward to reconnecting with her for this episode, and we're so excited to see where our conversation takes us. Thank you all for tuning in, and Dr. Daya Grant, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, it's really, really good to have you back. And as we were just starting the podcast, listening to the the train that goes by uh, was just lingering and lingering. And just when you thought the last horn would whistle, it kept going and going. Um, I love that. It's just so, um, it just mirrors what happens in our minds and in our uh, thought process. Like we, we're just, we feel like we're just over the hump. And yet there's still this like lingering, lingering bit of noise. Um, so with that flow, flow is your word. Um, why is it your word and and what does it, what does it mean for your intention for 2024? Last year did not feel flowy. (laughs) So as I, you know, every year I, I sort of think about what I want my intention to be for that year, for the new year. Um, but really it arrives spontaneously, usually in meditation or after a workout and it's always spot on. So when flow hit me after a yoga practice, I, I realized that's exactly what I want to cultivate more of. Last year I was still in the throes of postpartum and, also trying to do all the things because my ambitious nature just would not seize. And that created a lot of um, challenges, internally cultivated challenges. And I, towards the end of last year, started to experience more moments of flow in my work, in 
my athleticism, and my parenting. And it felt really, really good. So when that word landed, I, I just aligned with it. And, you know, we, we can't just switch the switch and drop into flow whenever we want to. Um, but I've done enough research now to know that there are some triggers. There are some things we can do to set ourselves up to give us a better chance of getting into flow. And I certainly know what it feels like when I'm in it. So with those two things, I'm hopeful that this year I can, you know, go through the resistance that we forget is a necessary precursor to flow. And then when I'm in it, whether it's while I'm writing or while I'm playing with my kids or while I'm on a run, I can really just soak it all in and enjoy it and be with it. Um, knowing that it's not going to last forever. It may not last beyond a few minutes, um, but I can lean into that and appreciate that. So, and then the other side of it is we all love to educate on all of this. And so it's part of my mission this year as well to educate every athlete I work with, my virtual community and, um, and even my family and friends about what flow state is and the science behind it, what we know about it, what we don't yet know about it, what it feels like, and encourage more of us to do, do what we can to set ourselves up for a little bit more flow because it feels really good. And I think it benefits all of us. Well, can you share some of that education with the audience? Um, what do we know about flow? Well, we know what it is in terms of what it feels like. So flow is the optimal performance state when we have no sense of time, when we are completely immersed in whatever task that it is that we're doing. And what's necessary for this flow state to happen is there has to be alignment between the the challenge, the whatever the task is, has to be hard enough to make you work for it. And also your skill has to match that. So sometimes people say, okay, well, if I'm just on the couch watching TV, can that be flow? No. Um, There has to be this element of challenge. So if if I challenge you to think about, okay, when was a time when you were in flow? It probably felt like for both of you, maybe you experienced moments of this, um, swimming, biking, or running, when there was no real sense of time, when you feel like you could keep going, doing whatever it is that you're doing, when you're locked in, there's no distraction. And yet you're aware of everything that's happening around you. This is something we can get to through our meditation practice, right? It's um, it's really this optimal state. But what I think and what I alluded to before is we forget that in order to get there, it's actually necessary that you move through this period of resistance. So for example, Jess, you just wrote an incredible book. I have no doubt that you experienced moments of flow in writing that book. I mean, it's obvious when you read it. And I also know that there were some moments when <laughs> you hit you hit a block. 
you couldn't quite figure out like how to put this puzzle together. And when we have those, those moments and we hit those walls, sometimes we just want to throw our hands up and say, okay, well, this just isn't working. And often we have to remember, okay, what if this is what's necessary before I get to that next step? So we can step away from it. We can go outside, we can do a workout. Then when we come back into it, there's a better likelihood that we will get back into or get into a flow state. The research is really, really fascinating. The theories underlying what flow is in terms of the neuroscience is emerging, but there's still a lot we don't know. Um, We don't know if it's the frontal cortex, the front of our brain that's quieting um, and enters into this hypofrontality activation. So there's not as much happening in the front of our mind. Our executive functioning is, is quieting down. That's one theory. There are others, but the, the commitment of researchers on this topic is, is really strong. And I'm so excited to see where this goes. Is there chemicals that are released from the brain in flow that you know, like the the good feeling chemicals. What what happens with chemical release in the brain when we're in flow? That's a great question. There's a whole neurochemical cocktail happening up there. Um, a lot of the things that we experience when we have that runner's high. So yes, there's the release of um, endorphins of endocannabinoids, which is is a new molecule for a lot of people or a new class of molecules for a lot of people. Um, cannabinoid. So it's the same, it, it binds to the same receptors that the active ingredient in marijuana does. It was released when we run and we are, we're learning more about this now. There is one molecule that our listeners, your listener, listeners will find really interesting and it's called anandamide. And it is sometimes called the bliss molecule. That that is an endocannabinoid. And oh my goodness, the science is such in its infancy right now. But there are all of these things that are happening simultaneously that we know can't last forever. Like these chemicals, this cocktail has to go back down, right? And, um, And what are the triggers to get there? That's what... That's what the science is going to start to tell us. So yes, there are some of these things. And I think what, what's really interesting is we're starting to tease out, okay, what is the difference between a runner's high, flow state, clutch state, bliss? <laughs> like where is there this overlap and where are they distinct in terms of the neuroscience? And um, we don't really know yet, but we're starting to get a clearer picture. It's such a fascinating, um, it's such a fascinating discovery of how we can find a place of, of high performance, but we're, we're calm and easeful in that state of performance. We're not tense or, or anxious, or it's almost too easeful. Um, and I have experienced it. I've definitely experienced it in basketball. Like I can tell you, I've, I've experienced it. Just, I just have a confidence and I don't play basketball anymore back in the day, but I would have a confidence of going down and, and hitting a shot no matter where I was. And, and that, 
And if you look at from an external view, you'd say this little, you know, the short guy who can shoot the ball is shooting over these tall guys and he's doing it consistently and he's doing it in all variations. So what has changed? And I don't know what has changed, but I also stick with me here. There's another moment I had a couple years ago on the treadmill where I was starting to, to practice fasting the night before and go into a workout, a hard workout the day before and not have any um, cal- uh, calories available. And I would get into a state of repetitive three minute sessions on the treadmill where I felt calm and easeful, but I'm running so fast. So there's two different things happening there, but I'm able to tap into the same ease. And I guess it's almost the ease almost matches up with a confidence. Um, yes. And I don't know if any of what I just described makes any sense, but they're two different flow experiences. Yes, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. And I think any athlete, even just hearing your stories, will start to think back on their their sport or even a sport that they they no longer play um, and have those realizations. And what's interesting is that the experience is really hard to articulate, right? Like you're you're in it and it felt easeful and you had this confidence, but it's really hard to find the words <laughs> to explain what that felt like. And um my mentor, my late mentor, Ken Revisa, did a lot of research early on on the experience of flow state. And he interviewed many elite athletes and pulled out the common characteristics of ease, of confidence, um, but also saw how they were slightly different and the context was different, how they, what preceded it was different. Um, but wouldn't it be awesome if you could experience what you experienced on the treadmill playing basketball a little bit more frequently? <laughs> uh, yeah, sign me up for that, please, please. <laughs> <laughs> but if we're always in flow state, we can't always be in flow state. We want it more frequently. Yeah. I think that's the key right there. We want it more frequently, right? Yes, we want it more frequently. And um, it, I actually, I have to, I have to admit that for the first chunk of my career. I really didn't talk a lot about flow state. Part of the reason was we didn't know enough yet about the science underlying it. And my perspective was really, we're not in flow state all that often. We're maybe there 10% of the time in our sport if we're lucky. Um, So why are we going to focus so much on that 10%? Let's really focus on the 90% and exercising the mental skills you can to play and perform at a high enough level when you're not in that flow state, because that's really what's going to keep you consistent. Um, And that's critical for athletic development. But now it's starting to shift a little bit more. I'm talking about it a little bit more. I still think you have to train to be in that state that's not flow, because that's just the reality. but as the research is coming out, okay, there may be some things that we can do to trigger the onset. I'm curious if there's any studies or science around athletes who have a regular meditation practice and their experience in flow and athletes that don't have a meditation practice and their experience in flow. 
I have not come across that study, but oh my goodness, that needs to happen. <laughs> yes. yes. I mean, I think yes. I could predict what we would find. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I will say it's so cool to see all of these meditation studies on athletes coming out. Um, however, most of them still are focused on mindfulness. And while that's critical, there is so much more that we can look at with meditation and a formal seated practice um, that really emphasizes going deep and focusing. And so the mindfulness research is thrilling and there's so much that's exciting about it. But I am curious to see more of the studies that are taking athletes who have been trained to meditate in um, a different, using a different method, a different method of meditation and, and really seeing what that shows specifically in the brain. And yes, as it relates to flow and their experience of it. Can you, just for someone listening, they're like, well, you just mentioned mindfulness and meditation. So maybe distinguish, I, I, I know what you're talking about, but maybe they're just like, well, aren't they the same thing? Yes. That's, it's so important because I think they are used interchangeably. Um, and mindfulness is a type of meditation. Meditation, you can think of as an umbrella term. Mindfulness is a, a way of meditating. It is, and it's a way of being, right? Just in your everyday. And I think it's so translatable and that's why it's really gained a lot of traction. And there has been a lot of research on it um, for decades now. But it really is mindfulness is non-judgmental awareness of the present moment. And it is practicing an open awareness. It's noticing all that is in your purview in the moment, um, not judging it, being really here, rooted in the present moment, right? Meditation, different types of meditation get at different things. So another type of meditation is where you are not open to all that's coming into your awareness. You're focused on one thing. So you may be focused on your breath. You may be focused on another anchor, such as a mantra. You may be focused on the space in between your inhale and your exhale. But there is a... Um, a funneling in of your attention on one thing. And as the other thoughts come in to your awareness, your attentional field, instead of noticing them and letting them pass on through, you actively bring your awareness back to whatever your anchor is. And that is a um, maybe it's it's more active than passive. But that's hopefully a little bit of a distinction. And then within, you know, outside of mindfulness and the rest of the meditation field, there's so many practices that get to different things. Um, I think one thing, and I just, I, this is important, I think, to say, because it's not, I don't hear it much. We often hear the point of meditation is not to clear your mind. And I will say, and this may be controversial, but I will say that 
There is a place for that, yes. There is, it is important to go into a meditation practice knowing that it's going to meet you exactly where you are. And also, there is tremendous value in getting to that place where your mind is much quieter. And ultimately, it is possible because I can tell you from experience to get to that place where your mind is blank. And it is unlike any other experience that you can ever have. (laughs) So that may not be your first goal and that may feel incredibly overwhelming and like, well, gosh, there's no way I'm ever going to get there. So don't let that prevent you from sitting down on your meditation cushion and doing the practice and also be open to the possibility that you can get there at some point for a short period of time. Would you agree that, because of course I've come up against that as well, you know, my mind's too busy, I can't stop my thoughts. And, you know, the first entry point is like, you don't have to stop your thoughts. It's not about stopping your thoughts. You know, your mind is a a thought producing machine, but that I found that, and that was, that was me, you know, and I, I avoided meditation for so long because to sit with myself was, that was really brutal. (laughs) was, was not fun. And, um, but what I've come to find in my own practice is I have entered those states of, you know, no mind, or as quantum physics would describe it as zero state awareness, that it it's a byproduct. It was a byproduct of all of the, for the lack of a better word, effort of come back to the mantra, come back to the mantra, come back to the mantra, come back to the mantra. Okay. On the mantra, on the mantra. Okay. Back to the mantra. And through that training of the mind to be one pointed, then it fell into a calmness or a, a serenity or spaciousness that even when the biggest waves in my life are crashing, I still hold a space. And I believe that that spaciousness, even though life can be so tough, is because of all those reps and those reps bringing me to that place of quiet, uh, a quiet mind. But if that's your goal and you don't have a lot of experience meditating, I think you're setting yourself up for, you know, abandonment really of the practice. Yes. <laughs> I didn't mean to say failure. Yes. You're just not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Your <laughs> yes. yes. That is so perfectly and beautifully said. And oh my goodness, I've been, yes, meditating since I was a little, little one. And um, the vast majority of my practices still is that effort. <laughs> It is. I mean, there's a lot of thinking that happens in my head and it's really hard to transcend that. But when I have those little moments, even if it's so brief, it just reminds me that, okay, all right, it's there. I can get there. Like that vast blue sky is there behind all of the clouds and the noise and the this and the that. Um, but yeah, it, don't know that it's there, know that it's a possibility, and then get yourself back to, frankly, the grind. <laughs> Put in those reps. Totally. Yeah. Do the work for the sake of the work. Because, you yeah. know, you're talking about like that little moment of bliss that you may have, and someone would be like, wait a minute, you're telling me I'm going to sit here, dedicate part of my time, I'm going to meditate and not, not be doom scrolling on my phone. And, and, and I'm going to do this for the next six months only for about five minutes of bliss at one point in time. That's what you're telling me? Like, no way. <laughs> no way. 
<laughs> but that 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 spaciousness, that bliss pays dividends for a very long time. Well, that's I'm saying you got to shift your don't don't focus on the end goal. Don't don't be like this is yeah. I want to get that 5 minutes. It's just every day you're showing up for yourself training your mind for more moments in life that you're going to have more clarity and space to maybe be available for that. Yeah. And don't minimize it to a time. Like, not that we can even measure like, oh, I was, you know, in a quiet space for 30 seconds. (laughs) You, You can't because then that's the thinking mind, but don't, don't, simplify it to, well, I'm going to do all this work for 15 months and have five minutes of bliss. Don't, don't underestimate that power of those five minutes to transform your life experience from that moment forward, because it will, because there's a part of you that will never forget that that calmness exists. And also (laughs) don't forget that there's stuff happening behind the scenes that you may not be aware of. So in your brain, there are functional connections that are changing. There is rewiring that's occurring, even when it feels tough, especially when it feels tough, when you have that resistance. Every single time you bring your mind back to your anchor, that is strengthening those connections. So yes, you may not experience it in the moment, but this is where the neuroscience really pumps me up because I know that there is something happening. There are shifts happening structurally and functionally. So heck, yeah, okay, I'll keep doing this. Somewhere down the road, I'm going to see it pay off. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, and I know you, you've talked about studies before, but there was one you you mentioned, and I don't want to go too deep into into studies, or we can, whatever. Um, but it, it, there was a study where they focused on the number one. You said um, one, 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 and and at the end of it, I think it was was it reaction time was quicker. Can you speak to that? Was that the? I think that's the one. Yes. Yes. They were really trying to elucidate our understanding of the effect of mantra, but they didn't want to wrap in any sort of like spiritual or religious even connotations. So they picked a neutral word one, which I actually don't think is that neutral. Cause when I think of one, I'm like, okay, I can get really spiritual with the word one. We are all um, one. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, but that's what they did. And they wanted to see what is the effect on performance um, when you practice a repetitive affirmation, a mantra. And Yes, you, you're right. They did look at reaction time. And I don't remember exactly yeah. how much time they spent practicing, but the point is you do something in your mind on your meditation cushion, and then your performance benefits. Your reaction time is quicker. Um, they're now, you know, they'll look at so many different measures of performance and and see what the benefit is. And there are almost always benefits. <laughs> yeah. And I would look at, there's look at it as, and I'm thinking of, I, of course I'm tying this into athletes. Like I'm standing at the start line of an Ironman swim. And if I can find calm and breathe, am I going to be more capable of swimming to my best because, because I've activated the muscle connection that's going to allow me to swim? Or have I given 
have I given the freedom of my mind to focus on one thing and not on others to allow the space for everything that I've done up to this point to be, to rise to the surface, to perform better. I guess it's one and the same, but you get curious about what it is that's happening that allows you to be your best in that moment. Yes. Well, and you touched on something really important. It's when you're, when you're at the start of the race, you have already gone through your pre-performance routine. And why do we do that? Why do we go through a series of physical actions? Why do we warm up? Why do we jump in the water? Um, There are a lot of physiological reasons for that, but also it's so that we can prime our mind so that we can get to our optimal intensity level, the place where you know you need to be in order to grant yourself um, the chance of performing at your potential. And that's, that's really the key here with so much of this, this work with athletes. It's empowering them to understand where they need to be from an intensity standpoint. So how much physiological arousal do you need to feel at the start of a race to then perform at your best. And that is different for everybody. If I ask any athlete on a scale from zero to 10, with zero being, I'm so relaxed, like I have no tone in my muscles, to 10 being, I'm just amped, where do you need to be? The number is always different. And the challenge is you need to know what your number is. And then you have to have the tools to either psych up if you're too low or psych down if you're too high. Um, to give yourself that space so that when the gun goes off, you are, you're in it, you're focused. You um, are telling yourself all the things that you know that you need to say to perform well. And doesn't that require a level of self-awareness to really know, you know, what you need and what works well for you and not what works well for your teammate, although that can be a gauge for something that you may try, but without self-awareness, will we ever be able to reach, let's say, athletic performance without a level of self-awareness? No. Mm. <laughs> Period. <laughs> no. Um, you can't, you, yes, it's key. And you don't only need that self awareness at the beginning of a race, it's through your training, it's through the race. I mean, we're constantly in. in our sport of triathlon, you are constantly having to make adjustments to how hard you're pushing, what you're focusing on. If you have no sense of, what's happening with your body or your mind, then how are you going to make those adjustments? Um, it is self-awareness is, is the foundation for any transformation, really. Let's speak to the athlete that is just not interested in meditation, um, which is totally fine because without a readiness and a willingness, it's, it's not going to work. And, and that's, that's okay. Like there's nothing wrong with that. Let's speak to that athlete. That's not so interested in, um, you know, meditation or really deep mindfulness work, or what would be a way that they could, a simple way that they could be, they could deepen their awareness of self. Hmm. First thing that comes to mind is journaling. 
Mm. Now, when I say that word, a lot of athletes roll their eyes too. (laughs) But it is really important to have a reflective practice. And there's a way to do this so that you're not, um, it's not so far-fetched. So when I work with athletes, and you guys may do this too, I really encourage them to, after every single training session, spend a finite amount of time, let's say even five minutes, and just answer some basic questions about what went on with their training. What did they do well? What was tough? What challenge did they overcome? What thoughts did they have? And did those help their performance or hurt their performance in that training session? Um, When you do this over and over and over, you start to exercise that muscle, that reflect self-reflective muscle, and also see patterns. So, oh, interesting. When I look back and I see that when I had these thoughts, I wasn't feeling really good. I wasn't performing well. I wasn't hitting these metrics. But when I had these thoughts, I was. Okay, maybe I have more of these thoughts. Um, So journaling or debriefing in some way that you can write down and track is a really, really good way to do that. There's also just checking in with your body and your mind. And one way to do this is to have a focal point. So this is just an inanimate object that you look at while you're training, um, while you're performing even, but you just look at this object, you take a deep breath, you notice what your heart rate is, you notice what your thoughts are in that moment. It's like, it's, it's like a, uh, I forget who uses the term temple bell, but it's, it's a moment to just check in. It's that temple bell that goes off. You look at this thing that is a neutral object and you just check in with yourself and you do that repetitively. And over time, that becomes a habit. You know that when you're on the bike, on the trainer, if you look at this vase in the corner of your room, that's the thing that is going to center you. That's going to remind you, okay, what thoughts am I having right now? How is my body feeling in this moment? Um, So those are two skills that you can use to develop that self-awareness. And they're, they're simple. The key is remembering to do them and exercising that muscle and just doing it on repeat. Yeah. I think the journaling is huge because, and I I do, I ask our athletes to do that, especially after races, um, more long, you know, in between races and stuff, because the mind is, it forgets. Um, I found it, it's not very reliable. And what I hear most often, you may hear this with athletes, you talk back to maybe a race and they didn't journal, they didn't write anything about it. And they have this belief around it. What happened at the race and in reality, you saw what happened. And it's like, that that's definitely, that's not matching up. That is not, I don't know where you're pulling this from, but it's just what we've, what the mind is conditioned to, which is, which it will default to what's comfortable. Right. So if we're not onto it, it's going to default to what we're practicing. So if we're always getting into that interval on in the workout and we're bailing and a five minute interval, we're bailing at three minutes for always doing that. That's what we're practicing. But if we journal, as you're saying, and write down, well, Here's the moment it happened. What thought came up? The thought said I couldn't do it, but my legs were still turning over. So what is it about that three minute mark that's that's um, that I need to get curious about? And yes. you're only going to notice that from journaling. 
Yes, because what it does is it creates space. Um, actually, well, it creates space between you and your performance. And in that space, you're able to analyze, you're able to get curious about what you can do next. And from a neuroscience standpoint, it moves the experience from the more, um, the deeper brain structures, the limbic system, where there's a lot of emotion, where there's memory, and it moves it to the frontal cortex through the act of writing it down. So now, instead of being attached emotionally to what happened and to be biased and to have you know, a skewed view of really what the experience was, we're putting that into our frontal cortex, which is much better at more neutrally evaluating what just happened. That's through the act of writing. And I actually... I really encourage like good old fashioned pen and paper. <laughs> um, it's hard. It's hard to convince most of my athletes to do this. A lot of them will just type notes on their computer or in their phone and that's fine. Uh, but there is something because it takes longer to write out the words using a pen. It's just giving your brain more time to shift that experience into the front of the frontal lobe. Mm, yeah. You had said that, you know, neuroscience gets you so pumped up. Is there anything else that's like you're really jazzed about right now that um, some some newer findings or anything that comes to mind that you want to share? Well, there is finally starting to be some more research on the brain of endurance athletes. So this is obviously exciting. <laughs> um, it, you know, there's, I actually just submitted an article for triathlete magazine on structural brain differences between endurance athletes and non-athletes, um, or non-endurance athletes. And there are just to tease a little bit, there are some fundamental differences that, that occur structurally. And then there's also the functional differences. So, okay. I may have a larger, you know, certain part of the brain, um, I may have a stronger connection in my corpus callosum, which is the part of the brain that connects your left hemisphere and your right hemisphere, which is most likely because of years and years of endurance training. Now we see that with the research. Functionally, what does that mean? Um, the research still is really early. So what they're doing is they're they're looking at the structural differences and the functional connectivity differences. So by that, I mean how different parts of the brain talk to each other um, and that affects our behavior. But they're not yet at the point of really being able to say, this is what we're seeing, which then carries these implications for endurance performance. So I'm excited to, to watch some of this data come out and to see, okay, what does this really mean for those of us that aren't in the lab, for those of us that are setting some really big goals in our sport? What does that mean? Like, how can I take what's changing in my brain and actually like, leverage it? So that'll be, that'll be interesting to see. Um, and also, like I mentioned before, just all of the stuff with endo endocannabinoids and anandamide and these bliss molecules, um, Let's see what happens with that and what we're, be, we're able to take from that into our own training. Mm. So 
I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Like, I don't know how closely you follow triathlon and the, the, the Norwegian method, this whole, like the Blumenfeld and like all this testing and everything they're doing with the physical structure of the body. But I wonder how much we've, ex- we've reached, not reached, but we're getting closer to reaching that physical and the same thing with Kipchoge and the, and the two hour marathon. Like we've, we've reached that physicalness of our, our, of our limits, but we're, we're not even like scratching the surface of the power of this, this mind, uh, mindset that we can boost ourselves just by practicing doing nothing. No, I shouldn't say nothing, <laughs> practicing doing something that we don't normally consider training, moving the body. Yes. I think you're absolutely right. Um, there's, there is data starting to, to suggest that, that physically we may be close to our limit, but that doesn't mean that our performance can't continue to go up because now we're going to unlock the mind. And that's, I have no doubt that if we fast forward 10 years, we are going to see extraordinary things come out of sport. And it's not going to be this new training method or this new recovery method. It's going to be that athlete did neurofeedback training or that athlete was really putting in the reps with mental imagery, like religiously. Um, that's, that's, I have no doubt that that's what it's going to be. So we're just at the forefront of this. Mm. Yeah. I'm excited about that as mm-hmm. I'm, as I, I don't know, I'm pursuing my fastest Ironman. So I'm like, I am going year 20 right now, but there's things I'm not going to increase my training volume because that to me doesn't make sense. But what I am doing is taking the other things, the mobility, the yoga practice, mm-hmm. the breathing, um, longer meditations. Jess and I sat through, a an eight hour meditation Christmas Eve morning, um, to really like, yeah, like get into that, uh, that stillness and calm, although uh, it wasn't often, well, it was, it wasn't like a long span of it, but there were moments of it. I I should (laughs) share. Most of it's a grind. (laughs) But, but I feel like there's that approach, (laughs) that approach of, of expanding the mind. And, and I love, you talked about this too, like in this other podcast I was listening to, and I hadn't looked at it like meditation and, and, and getting in that space of focus or, or, or mantra or whatever we're, we're working with is actually e- giving some ease to the mind because it's not focused on all these other things. And I always, I, I, I looked at it the other way, like we're not focusing on all these things, so we find ease, but we're in the ease because we're not focusing on all that stuff. Like we're able to have clarity and space. Yes. Yes. It's, you know, there's that, it's it's a myth that we only use what 10% of our brain. It's a total myth. Um, but we're not using it. What's not a myth is we're not using it efficiently. So when they look at the brains of elite athletes compared to amateur athletes, what they see is that there's so much, um, there's so much more efficiency. So there are less regions in the brain that are active while they're doing their sport or a simple skill in their sport. So it it may seem, gosh, their brain is just not as active. It's not firing as much. There's not as much happening. Well, because it doesn't need to be. They've really just honed their focus so that 
what is necessary is, is what's happening. Um, and everything else is able to be quiet. So, so yes, it's really, it's really about that. It's about like quieting what's unnecessary, eliminating the distractions and really allowing the brain, um, the space to, cause it takes a lot of energy. Our brain takes a lot of energy to function. So if we're challenging it with multitasking with, you know, as we're training, as we're running, we're also thinking about all these other things. Well, that's just going to make it harder. It's going to take a lot more energy. Um, so the more efficient the brain can function, the more optimal our performance will be. I would assume there's a tie-in between um, you know, the ease in our brain and let's say a sitting practice of meditation where, which I consider to be like a parasympathetic activity, right? We're, we're stopping, we're actually stopping movement and we're resting the body. And I would think there's a, there's a bit of a, a correlation there, right? And then also taking that one step further, like increased recovery for the athlete from sitting breathing. We know that the breath is so tied into the nervous system and, um, you know, getting that nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system back online, helping the body heal from the training. Yes. Yes. And that's what I would say to the athlete that doesn't want to yet start a, a formal meditation practice, a seated practice is what if, what if I told you that this actually will speed up your recovery? So instead of needing the full day to get back to baseline, what if you could do a 20-minute meditation practice or even, if that's off the table, even a progressive muscle relaxation practice and really tap into that parasympathetic nervous system um, so that you can get back to what it is that you love to do and the movement and the sympathetic nervous system activation quicker. I think that's a pretty good, <laughs> pretty good way to sell it. <laughs> I, I would think it's a pretty strong selling point. Yeah, I do. I would. Um, okay. I want to switch gears just a little bit, but not really, uh, being the beginning of the year, January, lots of goal setting. Um, and so I've been talking to some athletes about goal setting and I've, I've had mixed, I've had mixed responses. I've had, I'm not setting any goals because, you know, in, in short, they're too stressful. It, it stresses me out to set goals. Or, um, you know, I've got this huge goal and it's like the one thing and I'm, I'm, point, I'm one pointed focus on that goal. And I get curious about those who are like, well, I don't really have any goals. It's not really who I am. Because I think that forward motion strong willpower, those things are really contingent on having something in the future that we're, we're striving for, that we're getting up every day. And, and we're in the winter months, you know, there are a collective of people that are really having a hard time getting out of bed and getting those early morning workouts done. But I just wanted to get your take on, you know, setting goals at this time of year and how do you support athletes in doing that? I think what those athletes are saying is so common, not just in the multi-sport, in running, in it's across the board. And I've heard this a lot too. Um, 
not even just in the winter, just there are, there are a lot of people that really feel like goal setting is a trigger word. Um, it's, it's something that they just don't want to really do. But to your point, if they're an athlete, they are doing it. (laughs) They just may not be defining it as goal setting. If you're moving your body regularly, if you enjoy that, yes, it's a love-hate relationship at times, but if you are committed to movement, you're doing it because it does something for you, because it unlocks something for you, because it um, pushes you, because it challenges you, because you know that it's helping you move towards a more, a better version of yourself or a more authentic version of yourself. Um, there is, like you said, some forward movement. So I think it's really important whether someone's enthusiastic about goal setting or not to actually take a step back and encourage them to connect to their core values first. So this is a practice in and of itself. Um, it's really, okay, what, what, what's really important to you? And I'll give them a whole list of words Compassion, courage, commitment, perseverance, discipline. I mean, like you can go on and on and on. And can you pull out three to five words that just without you even having to think just really speak to you? Now, all of these words are great. Yes, we'd all love to embody every single one of these qualities, but there are some that speak to us differently. Um, so for me, one of mine is presence. It is really important that I continue to cultivate that within myself, that as much as I can, I'm present for the people that I'm interacting with, whether it's you right now or my children when I'm talking to them. Um, That is a core value for me. That doesn't mean that I am the queen of presence and it's easy. It's something that I value and I keep striving for. So what are your core values? And then the next step is forming, formulating a mission statement from those core values. And this is really um, your cornerstone as a human, as an athlete. And I help my athletes go through that process. Um, so now they have this mission statement that they can look at every single day and it and feel empowered. Like it helps them stand a little taller. It helps remind them what it is that they're focused on and what it is that they're all about. So that is what has to happen before you even think about setting goals. Then you can start to have the conversation around, at the end of this year, what would be one thing that you'd like to look back on and say, oh, cool, I did that. Or I felt that. The goal doesn't have to be, I got this time at this race, or I qualified for that. It doesn't have to be that if that is either too scary or um, just doesn't feel good. It can be, I want to run a pain-free half marathon, personal goal. (laughs) Um, I want to feel like I'm in flow a little bit more often, maybe 5% more. Like You can make these very process-oriented goals that 
maybe someone from the outside would look at and and think, huh? Like you're not going to put that on your resume. No, but it actually it moved the needle forward for me. The key is that whatever you're setting your eyes on, whatever that goal is or that intention, it aligns with those core values and your mission statement. Because when they're out of alignment, you're not going to have the motivation to get after that goal. When things get tough, you're going to throw your hands up and say, well, forget this. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to pivot. If they're aligned with your core values, then heck, you have a much greater chance of, of accomplishing that goal. Um, so that's where I would start the conversation. And yeah, I think that's beautiful. Cause I think the, maybe the confusion, it's almost like, I mean, I'm, it's like akin to nutrition, right? Like people are, you can find evidence for all these different ways to eat. And there's so many different voices and ways to do it that people just kind of throw up their arms and give up. They're just like, Oh, it's too much. So I like that taking a step back, that setting goals is perhaps not the first step. Setting goals is stepping back and and just noticing. I love that, that idea of all these words and um, noticing what resonates. And right there is, you know, an active presence to notice within themselves what is coming up for them for a meaning. And then because if you don't have, they need to be meaningful because if not, you're not going to use, because we were just talking to our teacher this morning about this with, um, he's like, belief. Like people talk about, you have to believe, you have to believe. And he's like, but that's not enough. It's, that's the first step. You have to believe. The second step is you have to direct your will in that direction that nothing, what does he say? He said, um, nothing happens until something moves. Yes. Yeah. Like nothing mm, happens right. until something moves. He's like, you can't just believe that's just the first step. You have to also have your will. And so, like you said, when obstacles come up or challenges come up or life gets stressful, you have to have that meaning behind it. Otherwise you will just say, forget about it. It's too much. Right. And you're worth it. You're worth that goal. You're so worth that goal. And you're so much more than just saying, oh, it's too much. Forget it. Yes. Yes. That's that's absolutely it. And it's also really important to remind them if they're not willing to set a goal yet, if that just doesn't feel good, even if we've gone through that whole practice, what little habit can you commit to, even just for this week, that you know feels good? So is it choosing to eat a very good intentional breakfast every single morning? If that makes you feel good, could you do that every single day this week? What about sitting for five minutes before you get into bed? If that's felt good a handful of times, what if you committed to that? Encouraging these really small habits stacking them with other habits, doing this habit stacking, and then seeing, okay, that was that was cool. That felt good. And that may encourage them to set goals. Like we know that action has to precede motivation. So by taking little actions, doing these little things, what will that motivate you to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I, I that's so true. I believe that. I'm on board. 
what I bump up against, and you may too, is this all or nothing. It's like, I don't want to do five minutes. I'm going to go, I'm going to do my hour meditation every single day because it's 2024. And, <laughs> and then no, you're not. day five happens and it, <laughs> and it doesn't, and it stops. And it's, it's, I don't believe it's their fault. I believe it's just the habit that they've, they've gotten into of it's all or nothing. It's either one way or, or no way. And what you're talking about, what we really believe in, I'm really passionate about that as well as the small wins, like many, many, many small wins, the five minutes of breath work this week. Great. Commit to it. And maybe next week it's something totally different. You get up and you go walk your dog every morning around a, a route and you're making these small changes, which add up to big changes in the end. It's just, it's sometimes you bump up against that a lot. I, I'm sure you do. Yes. No. Yes. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think for me, parenthood has really forced me to, to shift that all or nothing mindset. Um, it just early on was not possible for me to do more than, you know, three minutes, five minutes of meditation practice. And at first there was a strong resistance to, well, what is even the point? (laughs) I'm not going to do that. I need 20 to 30 minutes minimum. And I need my one hour once a week. And well, that wasn't possible in that chapter. So take what you can get and know that, okay, here's the neuroscience again. Know that those little wins, what does that translate to? A little release of dopamine. What does dopamine do? It keeps you focused on your path. It keeps you motivated to get after that little bolus of dopamine again. Your brain doesn't care if you did, well, from this standpoint, doesn't care if you did a one hour hard workout or 20 minutes of a yoga flow on your, on your mat or one minute of a meditation or 25 minutes of a meditation. It's a win. It's still something. And your brain will reward you by releasing that dopamine so that you'll want to do it again. And then when you have space, yes, throw in that longer meditation, throw in that longer workout, get outside and and do that trail run. But if you just have that all or nothing mindset, it's just not going to support you in the long run. So you have to, you have to meet yourself where you are and work with what you have. And, you know, to to bring George Costanza from Seinfeld into this, like going out on top, you know, like go out on top. And I actually, I, I mentioned this in, in a wake athlete in the book that there was a time where I told my teacher, like, I'm going to go an hour every day. And he's like, don't, don't do it. <laughs> he said, I want you to always leave your meditation wanting more. Yes. Take that desire and let that desire to continue to build because that desire is going to get you running to the cushion every morning. And, and also, you know, this from the spiritual perspective is like, and, and also in, in physicality, we, you can't skip any rungs on the ladder. You can't, like, I can't say that I'm going to, you know, beat BJ at an Ironman in three months. It's just not going to happen. There's way too much work that needs to happen between there, but maybe I could beat my own fastest time. So you want, it's okay to go out on top. It's okay. Like those three minutes left you wanting so much more and teaches us, you know, that 
patience and those slow little drips and the consistency, but you don't have to use all your desire up in one session. Like let that desire be with you as, as a really good friend throughout your day, your desire to eat better, your desire to be more present with your kids, your desire to get to the cushion, your desire to race your fastest Ironman, whatever it is. Don't blow it all out in one training session. Allow that to be to be with you all the time. And I think that's what allows us to really meet goals in a, in a, in a, in a fulfilling way. I know that's a word that you use about fulfillment in the process. Yes, because if it's not, if you don't bring that piece into it and you don't set these goals in a, in a meaningful way, in a way that's going to bring fulfillment, then you're left trying to chase something else on the other side of achieving that goal. And there's an emptiness that's there. Um, we see this a lot. One of one of my real missions is to help athletes so that when they stop doing their sport, they're not left with that all-encompassing, debilitating emptiness feeling. Mm-hmm. Now, there's all, of course, going to be a grieving process. Um, there's going to be a shift in identity, but I really take it upon myself to do what I can to prevent that um, slipping into a deep depression, which happens so frequently um, with elite athletes. So, so yes, it's, it has to, how can you find some fulfillment? And the reality of life is that you can't expect it to be all, all the time. It's, it can't, you can't move through with this all or nothing mentality um, and expect fulfillment because the world's going to throw things at you and life's going to throw challenges at you and really hard stuff. So how can you find some fulfillment in the smaller doses of the things that, that the practices that you know you need? Yeah. Beautiful. I yeah. like that. End on, I, I, end on a note of consistency. I, I hope everyone's listening to that. Um, so, all right. So people want to, they're listening to this. They're like, oh my God, I love everything. And I want more. Like, how do people work with you? I know, I think you have a master class now that you, you've posted. Like how, how what, what is it? How does it work yes. to get a hold of you? Yeah. Yeah. So I, the best way is always through my website, diagrant.com. Um, I'm also as you mentioned, Jess, now much more active on, on Instagram. I choose one in terms of social media, like you can find me there and pretty much nowhere else. Cause that's <laughs> just, I have to focus. Um, I do have, a, a class coming up. Um, it is the mind flow masterclass. It's a six week virtual course, mental conditioning program for athletes and high performers. It, combines yoga philosophy. It really uses yoga philosophy as the scaffolding for your mental conditioning, um, your mindset development. And then there's some neuroscience, of course, in there. And it is really, really cool. This is the second time I'm doing it. I did it last year. And um, so, yeah, you can go on my website, get on the wait list if you're interested. So you know when that course opens. And also I send out a weekly newsletter with mindset tips, mental strength tips. Um, I love connecting authentically with other amazing humans and athletes. So don't hesitate to reach out. 
Amazing. Thank you so much. This has been another fabulous conversation. I'll put a link into the show notes from our conversation that we had a couple of years ago. Um, so that gives all your background. And, you know, you had mentioned earlier in our conversation today that you've been meditating for a long time and we touch upon all of that. So after you listen to this, if you didn't listen to the first one, and even if you did go back and listen to it again, because I did in preparation for this conversation and there's so much gold in there. So thank you for sprinkling more gold uh, throughout our community. Really, really grateful for your time, Daya. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for having me. This is always a thrill to speak with you guys. 